Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I hope you are right now spending time not just with your family and friends, but with the Lord this morning. We've been praying that God would speak to you through his word. And so we pray that you would also um, just really find what he has prepared for you today. Uh, today, we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. That's our first uh, passage that we want to look at. And uh, I'll go ahead and read Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, and then begin with the sermon this morning. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time that you have given us this morning. Lord, I pray that at this message, Lord, you would help us to see through your word, God, that you are truly the Lord of our lives. That you are the majesty, the most high, the Adonai, that you are Lord, our God. There is no other. In Jesus' name, I do pray. Amen. Let me start off by saying leadership matters. It really does. Leaders and strong leadership, for that matter, is able to look to the future. They are able to paint a vision of where it is that we as a group can go and what would it look like and how to get there. Leaders are the ones with a vision of the future that gives us courage and hope that they will be leading the charge with the way that they live their lives and the way that they apply themselves to the very things that they teach. Strong leadership is able to provide protection in the present, create an environment where people can learn and people can take risks, make mistakes, invest. Good leadership creates an environment where people know that they're cared for, that they are understood. And that the ones that they look up to will fight for them if the situation calls for it. Strong leadership is able to understand the lessons of the past. They are able to look back to mistakes and victories and gather lessons from history so that we don't make those same mistakes again so that we are able by their understanding of what has happened to be able to apply lessons from those victories so that we can move forward in the present. Brothers and sisters, strong leadership matters, not just in the church, not just in the companies, not just in the families that we have in our country as well, but most importantly of all, with our God. Today, we are going to take a look at the name Adonai. 
And I, and I have to be honest, preaching on the names of God is not an easy task, whether it's a name specific or whether it's a character trait or an attribute. In a lot of cases, when we pick a name, a lot of the times that name is repeated many times without within scripture. And to kind of um, condense it and to summarize it and to deliver it and package it in a way that is understandable in, in, a, in a message, in a solitary message is a very challenging thing to do. And so major props and credit to Pastor Dean and Pastor Jim um, for the way that we have been taught from their sermons thus far. But I say this because Adonai is also not a very easy name to figure out. But I will tell you what I have learned as the main idea for this message. That I will delight and I will obey my God. Because he is the Adonai and the Lord of all. He is God. And there is no other. Let's take a look at how we break down the name Adonai. Now, I want to kind of split it up in its parts because it's actually a kind of a complicated name uh, to figure out. Let's look at the first root of the word Adonai. And that's, of course, um, Adon, A-D-O-N. Now, in Hebrew, Adon is pretty simple. It means master or lord. But where the complexity comes into the name Adonai is with the suffix I or A-I at the very end. Sometimes it's spelled A-Y. Now, the reason it's so complicated is that if you look at that suffix, there's actually multiple uh, meanings that can be derived from that. First of all, it's a first person possessive, which makes a lot of people think that Adonai is translated as my Lord. But if you look carefully also, you'll find that there is a plural connotation into that suffix. And so what a lot of people have done and is the definition that is most popular is that Adonai is the Lord of all. That he is the God of God and he is the Lord of Lord. There are three things that I want to do today. The first is to discuss what do we mean when he, we say that he is the Lord of all. What is his realm? What is his ownership? What is his rulership over? That's the first question I want to answer. The second question I want to answer is how do we respond to the Adonai? What are ways in which we respond to him as, of course, seen through God's word? And then finally, how is it that you and I are able to obey the Adonai? And how is it that we can do and delight in what he commands of us? Well, let's look at the first of the three questions here today. And that is the question of what is Adonai's rule? dominion or reign 
I, I like to think of this as the Lion King, right? When Simba looks at Mufasa and asks him, his father, what is it? Like, what is our domain? What is our rule? Where is our realm? And Mufasa says, everything that the light touches is ours. In the same way, I kind of want to describe what is the Adonai's rule and realm. And there's three things to this. The first one, is that he is above all spiritual powers. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. Please join me if you haven't done so already. This is the first passage that shows to us that God himself is ruler over all powers that are spirituals, dominions, and principalities of the heavenlies. Verse 17 says this of Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord, Adonai, of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Well, what does it mean when we say that he is the Lord of Lords? Well, a couple of um, weeks ago, we talked about the attributes of holiness, and we pointed to Isaiah chapter 6, and we said that God is holy, holy, holy. And what we talked about is that when a word like that is repeated three times, it takes that attribute to the superlative in that God is not just holy, he is holier and he is the holiest. In the same way, we can look at the fact that Adonai is the Lord of Lords. And when we have that uh, repetition in the Bible, we understand that he is Lord of the utmost, that he is supreme, that he is absolute, that he is truly the fullest and the most complete of all in the world. Look at the context of Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. What type of, of event would have been in their minds? when they think that God is the God of gods and that he is the Lord of lords, Adonai, what event is going through their mind when they're thinking about that? And most often than not in the Old Testament, the greatest event that demonstrated the power of God was, in fact, as we know, the Exodus. That powerful event when God chose a nobody and made him a somebody. You remember how God found Moses in the deserts of Midian and 80 years of age calls this man at the burning bush to face off a monarch named Pharaoh. And you remember when he calls him to face off against this Egyptian monarch, you have to realize that this was not just any other king. He was the ruler of the greatest military empire of that known day. And not just that, but Pharaoh was also seen as divine. And what you have within the book of Exodus is a face-off between God and the forces, the spiritual forces of the empire 
of Egypt. And of course, you know the story as God demonstrates his supernatural power over Egypt. Plague after plague after plague is poured down upon the nation, so much so that the magicians couldn't even keep up with God. And sure enough, God finds his people freed. And as they are approaching the Red Sea, they turn behind them and the militaristic nation of Egypt is following them with chariots. And so they cross over the Red Sea in a spectacular spiritual demonstration of power. On dry ground, they walk across that sea only to turn back and to watch as the Red Sea consumes the military force of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, there is no question on that day that the event of the Exodus demonstrates the supremacy of the spiritual power of our God. There is no other deity. There is no other God in all of the earth that you can appeal to. Now, it seems to suggest that if there are Lord of Lords, is there other Lords? Or is he God of gods? Is there other gods? And the answer, of course, is no. He alone is God and there is no other. But the fact of the matter remains is that there are definite spiritual entities out there. Whether we talk about Satan or whether we talk about demons or whether we talk about angels, And we find these evil forces of of demons and Satan mimicking the works of deities to deceive the nations. But the fact of the matter is, is that none of these spiritual entities, including angels, could ever desperately compare in power with our God. And sure enough, we see the same in the New Testament with Jesus Christ. You see, it was Jesus, by the power of God, who came down from heaven to earth. And while he was on this earth, he chose to go on the cross. And as he was on that cross and the nails were put through his side and on his wrists, he bore the punishment that you and I deserve. And that, of course, is the wrath of God. And as the father poured down his wrath upon his son and saw the anguish of his son's soul, it says in Isaiah 53 that he looked upon him and was satisfied. For it is because of the power of God with what was done on that cross that if we believe that he died and took our punishment for our sins, we too can become part of the family of God. But the good news is that he didn't just die. Of course, three days later, he came back to life again. And when death was defeated, and when he accomplished the resurrection from the cross, it is told to us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, the honor and the results could I say, the celebration of Jesus's glory revealed. In verse 20, Paul starts by saying this, that God, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his high throne, seated him 
at his right hand in the heavenly places next to the Father. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The fact of the matter is, is because the rule and the realm of Adonai is of such a significant spiritual power. It is unmatched that he is God of gods, Lord of lords, and he is God and there is no other. There is no other entity that you can appeal to if you have a problem with God. There is no one, nothing in all of the earth that can rival his spiritual power. And just like he has absolute authority, so does the word he carries to us today. You see, God's word is more than just infallible. God's word is more than just inspired. God's word is more than just inerrant. God's word is authoritative over our lives. It requires our obedience because it comes from the most high God. Does the Bible take that type of place in your life? Or do you find every reason to question it and doubt its authority over your life? The second realm of the Adonai that I want to talk about is that he rules over all of the earth. We see this in Joshua chapter 3, verse 11. Turn with me, please, to Joshua chapter 3, verse 11. Now, suffice it to say, Joshua is in, I, I guess you could call it the infancy of his leadership. He definitely hasn't yet built the type of reputation that Moses has at this point. And so while he is still a young one, he understands that if there's going to be any victory at all, it has to come from God. So that's what we look at in verse 11 of chapter 3 in the book of Joshua. It says this, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, Adonai, of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. And the question that I can ask from this verse is, what is being talked about when we say that God is the Lord over all the earth? What does he mean when he talks about the earth? Well, a question that we need to understand is that, is he talking about the ground that sits underneath our feet right now? Is he talking about the physical land that they are supposed to go and take possession of? Or, and this is what I think the answer is, is he talking about all the nations? Is he talking about all the armies and human institutions that would possibly rise up against him? You can possibly see from this next picture what this must have looked like as Daniel is with the Lion of God and he's going to face off against all these nations that stand against him. 
And the fact of the matter is, is that Joshua knows that if he has any hope for victory, if he's going to make it any farther than the nations who have fall, I'm sorry, the generations that have fallen down before him, if he's going to take that step forward past the Jordan, that God must be on his side. And there is absolutely no human institution that could ever rival the authority and the rule over the Adonai. And of course, Joshua learns this firsthand, that when they possess the land and when they continue with their invasion, they, they need not strike a single blow from a sword. They need not shoot a single arrow. The fact of the matter is by the blowing of the trumpets and the surrounding and the marching around Jericho, it was enough for those walls to come a tumbling down. Brothers and sisters, one thing that we see through the experience of Joshua trusting the authority and the rule of our Adonai over all the earth and the nations is that God has supreme power over every single human institution in our lives. Praise be to God that no nation can stand up against God. With all the chaos and the craziness that you see in the news, no organization can stand up against God. No state can stand up against God. No country can stand up against God. No family, no company can ever stand up against God. That God alone is in charge. And of course, God, of course, is the head of the church. This has been taught to us through brutal history. John Wycliffe wrote as he translated the Bible and his teachings and his tutelage passed down to a man named John Huss. John Huss had the courage to write against the Roman Catholic Church all the things that they were doing wrong. And as the church burned him alive, as he sang worship songs to his death, the teachings of Huss were picked up by none other than Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, as he read John Huss's writings, he was the one who started from the very beginning the Protestant Reformation. And the teachings of Martin Luther and Wycliffe and Huss came together into the hands of John Calvin that can bring the church that we have now today. Why? Because the church is not under a pope. A church is not under any human institution. A church is not under the authority, ultimately, of any elders or any pastors or any deacons or small group leaders. The church is always under Christ. We find this to be true in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, when it says that Christ alone is the head of the church. Brothers and sisters, don't you ever forget that. Whether you have a responsibility as a small group leader, whether you're a, 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 a parent in the family, whether you're the owner of a business, or you have a position of responsibility, or maybe you're a political leader, it makes no difference that every human institution in the world, all the nations fall to the authority of God. 
Well, you might say to yourself, well, if that's true, why is the world so chaotic? Why is it so wicked? Why is it so sinful and wretched every single time you turn on the news? Brothers and sisters, he's coming back. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, Jesus, our King, our Adonai, is returning to set up and establish a millennial kingdom over all the nations of every tribe and every culture and every tongue will come and fall to the authority of our God. And his rule, Jesus, here on earth, mind you, will be our king for a thousand years. And we can look forward to the return of the king. Brothers and sisters, our God Adonai is not just ruler and authority over every spiritual power in the world. He is not just ruler and authority over every nation and human institution of all the earth. But finally, he is also ruler and authority over us. It's personal. We belong to him. Let's look at it in the negative first. I know it's a little bit weird to look at it in the negative, but let's take a look at Exodus chapter four. Exodus chapter four, verse 10. Now, we've already talked about this a little bit, but we already know that Moses thought of himself as a nobody. Even though he was born into privilege, even though that he had a great amount of training, there's even evidence from Josephus to suggest that he was a militaristic leader before he got kicked out of Egypt, um, before he reached the age of 40. But you have to understand that Moses was in Midian for another 40 years. And as an 80-year-old man, he finally finds this burning bush. And God commands Moses, as we talked about, to go into the land of Egypt and have a face-off with Pharaoh. And while in chapter 3, some of his points are pretty good, what we find later on in chapter 4 is that he starts making excuse after excuse after excuse. Yet in spite of his reluctance and his lack of desire to follow what God wants. He still has the presence of mind of calling God his Lord and master. Look at what it says in verse 10 from Moses. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, Adonai, I am not eloquent, either in past since you have spoken to your servants, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. You see, Moses didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. And he made excuse after excuse. And what you find in chapter four, it came to a point where God, in his authority over Moses's life, puts his foot down and says, just go. But let's look at it in the positive. And I hope you will appreciate the contrast. In Jeremiah chapter one, Jeremiah chapter one, please turn with me if you may. Verse six, Jeremiah chapter one, verse six, we have 
I would say a very encouraging contrast, similar situation as Moses, but I think a much different attitude. Jeremiah said in verse six, ah, Lord, Adonai, God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. Now this is staggering because Jeremiah is 20 years old. He hasn't had the many, many decades of life experience that Moses had. He hasn't had the the, the prime training that Moses had up until the age of 40. He hasn't had a ton of life experience. He certainly hasn't been brought up in all the training of confronting the religious leaders of his day. And yet, in spite of all those limitations, God still commands Jeremiah, though not perfect, to face off against the religious leaders of his day and bring them a judgment that God wants delivered. But you see, Jeremiah is filled with hope. Jeremiah is filled with trust in God. Unlike Moses in Exodus chapter four, who was providing excuse after excuse after excuse, Jeremiah is genuinely concerned that he doesn't have the persuasive techniques. He doesn't have the rhetoric to convince and persuade the religious leaders of his day. And of course, at the end of the day, as you read the book of Jeremiah, God walks him through. And though not perfect, is found faithful. Brothers and sisters, we we see this same reference from the prophet to the Lord as master over their lives. From Isaiah chapter 6, from uh, David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, from Daniel chapter 9, a prophet after prophet in the Old Testament confess God as their Lord and Master. This is probably the most important point I need to make. And that is the fact that God has ultimate authority over all of our lives. My fear is that I think with all the conversation we have about discipleship, that it has allowed room for us to misunderstand the nature of our discipleship towards Christ. A lot of the times we talk about discipleship and we think to ourselves, maybe, maybe I'm just like a high paid consultant, ready to take up contracts and projects as to when I'm available to be used and to work. Or maybe we think of the nature of our discipleship to Jesus, our God, our Adonai, as that of a mercenary that we provide our services to the highest bidder if the price is right, like God. Or maybe we see ourselves as part-time co-workers for the cause of Christ, that we are only willing to devote uh, maybe 16 hours a week to the service of God, if that much at all. Brothers and sisters, I need you to understand that the nature of our discipleship to Jesus 
is not of a hired consultant. It's not a mercenary. It's not a part-time co-worker, but it has been translated as servant. The Greek word that is given to us commonly in the New Testament is that of a doulos. Now, some translations translate it as servant. Better translations call it a bond servant. But I think the most precise explanation to the word doulos is slave. And, and I know that that strikes you as harsh because when the um, uh, Bible was translated into English, the, the word slave has a massive negative connotation attached to it. And that was why some people believe that the word was translated bondservant or servant. But when Paul speaks of the word doulos in the New Testament, everybody understood that what he was talking about, about himself in Romans chapter one, verse one, as a doulos for Christ is that he was a slave to the dominion of God over his life. It was something that he was delighted to be a part of, that he wanted to obey God. He, he, he would not go to God and discuss terms of service. He would not go to God like a mercenary and ask, what is it in for me? What do I get out of this? He's not a part-time coworker that can walk in and say, well, I don't really want to work on Sundays and I really don't want to work on Mondays, but the rest of the week, I think I'm free. Let me check my calendar. He's not talking about a servant in today's day that can choose who you want to be hired by. But rather, when Paul realizes that he's part of the family of God because of what Jesus did for him on the cross, he realizes that his whole life belongs unquestionably with absolute obedience to God. Because he alone is our Lord and our master. There's no arguing with him. There's no negotiating with him. There's no terms of service that can be negotiated with him at all. It's not like you can choose him one day and then 10 years later, walk away from him. It doesn't work like that. When we are saved, regenerated, born again as Christians, we belong to him. That is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, Paul writes, we are bought with a price. In Romans chapter 6, verses 17 to 18, it says you were once slaves to sin, but now you are slaves to righteousness. And who decides what's right besides God? In Romans chapter 14, verses 7 to 8, it clearly says that we belong to the Lord. And so that is why I believe in Romans chapter one, verse one, along with a lot of other apostles who wrote the New Testament, when they say that they are a doulos for Christ, I believe they mean that they are a slave to Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, his rule and realm is above all spiritual powers over all the earth and nations, and he is the Lord and master of our lives. But how, second question, do we respond to the Adonai? What are ways that we treat him that we also do see in the Bible? Well, I think the first way that we treat the Adonai is that oftentimes we ignore him or reject him. We see this with the pride and the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar when he looks out as the king of Babylon and says, look at what all my hands have made. Only in Daniel chapter four to be turned into a beast so that he could be led to repentance. And if you continue reading that chapter, you find one of the most, I would say, spectacular confessions from a pagan king. Maybe we see ourselves like Demas, unfortunately, who, after so many years of following under the leadership of Paul, only to find in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, that Paul tells us, unfortunately, that Demas has left the fold so he could follow the desires of the world. And in 1 John, it's very clear that he was never saved to begin with in his life. Unless he repented, and we don't know, Demas fell away. The same is true for Judas. When self-interest and self-preservation was at risk, one of the darkest portrayals you will ever find in all of the Bible is when Judas meets our Lord, Master, and Savior and greets Adonai with a kiss so as to tell the guards who to kill. Or maybe, as we will look at the life of Jonah in the next couple of weeks, we know what God is calling us to do. We know he wants us to share his good news. We know that we are here to tell people to look to God. We know we are here to teach God's word, maybe in a Sunday school class, or maybe we're here to serve our neighbor, but deep down in our sides, we don't really want to do this. And so instead of going to Nineveh like Jonah, we go 180 degrees in the wrong direction to Tarshish. Brothers and sisters, I think the reason why we ignore and the reason we fight and reject God is because he is not the Adonai, the Lord of our lives. We are. When we believe that we have taken his throne, when we believe that we are in charge, when we believe that we can negotiate terms and call the shots and make decisions, when we believe that we're in charge and not him, that is when we ignore him, and that is when we fight him. And I would say it's hard-pressed to say that any of these people that I've mentioned in the Bible, without further evidence, we have no reason to believe that any of them were saved. But maybe we don't reject him and ignore him. 
but maybe we really do negotiate with God. That's the second way that I think we react to God, our Adonai. We see this, as we've already discussed with Moses in Exodus chapter 4. After excuse, after excuse, after excuse. God finally doesn't give up on Moses, but says, go. We see this in the life of Saul. Saul is one of the characters that troubles me the most because I see a lot of myself sometimes in him. Saul was somebody who was impatient. Samuel tells Saul, wait, don't you make that offering until I show up. But Saul does not wait. And when Samuel finally arrives, he tries to defend himself and argue that he did the right thing. That the armies were moving against him. And so it is not to be late, not to delay. He made the offering without Samuel. Only to find when Samuel comes up to him to say that Saul is about to be replaced by the next king, David. Or maybe we're not as bad as Saul and we're not as bad as Moses, but we're like Abraham. When the angels come to visit his tent and they tell Abraham about what they are about to do to Sodom, Abraham desires an outcome that is better than what he feels, at least in his own mind, is about to happen lowers the number every single time he makes a request, makes a request, makes a request. And every single time the the number is lowered, God agrees with him only to find because God knows that even the lowest number that Abraham came to is not enough to save the city of Sodom. Only later on to be completely destroyed. Why do we try to negotiate with God when he tells us to obey? Why is it that we try to dictate terms or or, or push the envelope or, or try to see what we can get away with as Christians with God? I think the number one reason why we do this is because we do not lay our desires down at his feet. We don't let go of our desires in comparing to the desires of God. And because when those two come to conflict, we want to negotiate. But the challenge here today is to be obedient. Finally, the last way that I think we respond to God, I pray, I hope this is true for all of us, is that we delight. Like I said earlier today, that I will obey and delight in my God because my Adonai is the Lord of all. You see, when we are reading Psalm 119, we come to agree that his commandments over our lives, his word and his direction gives us life. It gives us hope. We see in Psalm 119, verse 11, that his commandments keep us from sinning. In Psalm 119, verse 105, it says that it makes our way sure. It helps us to have peace and confidence in the present. Psalm 119, verse 92, that his word is a delight. 
And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, it is our duty to guard, protect, and to keep his commandments for our lives. Why? Why would we want to obey? Why would we delight to do what he desires? Why would we take joy in that? And 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 is the answer, is because we have the love of God in our lives. It's because we know that he loves us. It's because we know that he cares. It's because we have made him our Lord and master, and we delight in doing what he tells us to do because we know that he cares about us more than anything that we have in our lives. Brothers and sisters, unless we have the love of the Lord in our lives. We will not obey him. And as 1 John makes especially clear, we will not be a part of his family. So let me close today and conclude. How is it that we can obey the Adonai? And let's just close with this. Step one, and you've heard this before. Lay down your desires at the feet of his throne. I I say this because a lot of us, we have some good desires. We we for for some of us, we want to get a good education and go to a good college. For some of us, we want to get a good standing in a class. For some of us, it's, it's relational. We want to get married. For some of us, we want to get into a certain company. Or maybe for some of us, we want to have children. Or, or for some of us, we want to provide good things for our children. But the thing is, is that the reason we negotiate with God when he tells us to do something is because we have not laid down our desires, both good and bad, at the feet of Jesus. You see, God is not going to command us to do something that we desire. God is going to command us to do something that he desires, and there is no guarantee that what he tells us to do is going to include the things that we want. It might, but there's no guarantee, and that is why we have to leave it at the feet of Jesus at his throne. We have to lay down all of our desires at his feet for the sake of knowing that we might not see any of those desires again no matter how good they may seem to us. Number two, take stock of what you have been given. Think about all the things that God has blessed you with. All the the things like a car and a home and, and, and a lot of amazing things that you stuff your whole house with. Maybe not because you cleaned it all out because of shelter in place. Regardless of that, Here's the thing. Think about all the relationships God has given you, all the friends, the family, the people that you know at work or at school. Be be thankful for how many people he surrounded you with during this crazy time that we're living in right now. Take stock of the spiritual things as well. The lessons that he's taught you 
the talents, the spiritual gifts that he has given to you. Take stock of all of these things. You know why? Because I think the biggest reason why we have such a trouble of leaving our desires at the feet of Jesus at his throne is because we have failed to take stock of all the greater things that God has given to us. Take time to think those things through. Finally, number three, trust that our Adonai would provide when he commands you to do something. You see, God is not going to tell you to do something that you desire. That's why we had to lay those uh, desires at the feet of Jesus. God is not going to tell you to do something that can be done with things that you're already thankful for, because in that case, you probably won't need him and you'll probably do it yourself. Whenever God commands you, keynote, it always forces you to step out into deeper waters. It's always never going to be made up of the things that you already have, because when God commands you to do something where you have to trust him and step out into areas that you're nervous about or scared about to trust him more as your Lord and master. That is why he commands us to obey, because every single time we obey, we grow closer to him and we understand his love for our lives. Now, that isn't to say that God might ask you to use things that you're already thankful for. But the thing is that it's definitely always going to include things where you will have to trust him to provide. So when you don't think you can obey, when you don't think you can teach Sunday school, when you don't think you can share the gospel, when you don't think that you can be responsible or do the right thing when God calls you to do so, trust him to provide and lay down your desires at his feet so you don't start making excuses like Moses. But like Jeremiah, you trust him because you know that you belong and you are owned by the Lord when he purchased your life with what he did for us at the cross. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you will understand this morning, number one, that he is the Lord of all powers. He is the Lord of all the earth and nations, and that he is the Lord of your life. In every way, I pray that we would delight and obey our Adonai, because he is the Lord, he is God, and there is no other. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you because I realize, Lord, how much I need your mercy and your grace. Lord, I know in my own life how easy it is for me to be spiritually distracted, to get sidetracked in my devotion and my allegiance and my focus on you. Help us, I pray, especially as a church, to follow you. Lord, there is nobody and there is nothing in our lives that deserves the same amount of allegiance. 
And I pray, God, that we would take your word and that we would read it and obey it. And knowing that we have tasted and experienced your love in our life, we would take joy when you tell us what to do. In Jesus' name I do pray. Amen.